The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Downtown. What's going down, downtown? <laughs> Praise the Lord. I thank you all for allowing me to join you this morning. Baptism was inspiring. The music that made much of Christ was uh, energizing. I am at Southeastern Seminary in Wake Forest. It's a little different. Um, They're more on the rock vibe um, or the hymn vibe. Today was a merger. I like that merger. And I like the fact that you all have gathered here to not only be worshipers, but you know that inherently means be witnesses. So this location, I think providentially by God's grace, is so ideal for what Memphis could use right now. And then this diversity that we see going on is encouraging in a day like we live because if there's one thing the gospel touts is its ability to take Jew and Gentile, black and white, rich and poor, strong and weak and bring us together around the same throne. Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is I want to do what I've been assigned and that is um, to deal with Nehemiah 7 and 8 by saying something very quick about 7 and spending time in 8. Y'all don't mind that, do you? Why don't we pray and, and then we'll get started. Gracious God and Father, Uh, Who are we? Let's tell them we are the people of God. That means something. We're the people of God because you decided so. Thank you for the assembling of your people. Thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for praying for us on that night before you went to the cross. You had an elaborate prayer. And you prayed that we would be not only yours, but that we would be who you called us to be. We thank you for that prayer because it means that you had us on your mind. Uh, The song says, somebody prayed for me, had me on their mind, took some time and prayed for me. I'm so glad they prayed. I'm so glad they prayed. You prayed, Lord Jesus. And so now, as we dive into this text that elevates the word of God and keeps it front and center, in our view, we pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. What I'd like to do, let's make sure I set a little timer here. I can go. Some of the preachers have shared the anecdote about the girl who was dusting her mom's living room, came to the coffee table and asked her mom, Mom, whose book is this on the coffee table? The mother looking over, realizing that it was the Bible, said, Oh, that's God's book, honey. She said, We might as well give it back to him. Nobody here reads it. Whether it's true or not, it seems to capture what seems to often be true, that people with the Bible don't necessarily seem to want the Bible. 
the scholars often attest to the time when the atheist was what they call a biblical atheist. What they mean by that is that they knew the Bible that they were not submitting to. And it was primarily the biblical claims that they were rejecting and the biblical God that they were rejecting. They said, well, nowadays the atheist is just plain old atheist, not biblical atheist. They don't know the Bible or its claims. They just reject the notion of God. I testify as a college professor who teaches New Testament survey at a college that's Christian that we're in a day where when you walk in and say we're going to study the Bible, no one pulls out a Bible. (laughs) And those who have a Bible don't refer to it. And those who refer to it look disinterested in it often. I figured, well, maybe it's me, and I'm sure it's me, but it seems that I see this on day one before I have a chance to mess up. And so it's a combination that there seems to be this waning interest in the Bible. And yet the Bible would say that God's people are Bible people. That God's people have a joy in the word of God. So today what we'll do is we'll look at a text where chapter 7 tells you that God has a people. He's gathered his people. He's provided for his people to get together. And when they get together, the most foundational thing that they share in common is being rallied around the word. God has a people, chapter 7, and those people are Bible people, chapter 8. If you have your Bible, why don't you turn to Nehemiah 7. Chapter 7, again, I'm just going to sort of get through this, sort of breeze through it, because the point, it's a bunch of names, it's hard to pronounce, and really what it's telling you is that God has a people, he's gathered us all together. Verse 1 and 2 says this of chapter 7, now when the wall had been built, I had set up the doors. And the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed. I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Here we're introduced to the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites. We have in God's house those that sort of know that this is about worship. In God's economy, he has his people. We see the civil leader. Hananiah was the civil leader. Hananiah was the military leader. The gang's all here. God had brought these people out of exile and rallied them around Jerusalem where they were able to rebuild the wall because they were rebuilding the city. God has a people that he has gathered for himself. If you look, the checklist is really to let us know that Nehemiah wanted people who were really Jews, that were full-blooded Jews who were faithful to the covenant. People he could have, uh, he could keep and hold accountable to the covenant. This is why we believe in believer membership. We believe that you must be a believer in order to be a member of God's church. You can come in the door not being a Christian, but you can't join the community not being a Christian because that assumes that we want to hold you responsible for your role in being who God has made you in Christ. Well, this is what that is. The original leaders in 6 and 7, 
You got laymen, just generic laymen in 8 to 38 of chapter 7. You got the priests in 39 to 42. You've got the Levites in 43. You've got singers in 44. You've got gatekeepers in 45. You've got temple servants in 46 to 56. You've got the descendants of the servants of Solomon in 57 to 60. And you got some people of questionable ancestry in 61 to 65. All we're saying here is God has gathered his people and if you really look at it, it ends up being about 50,000 people who repopulate Jerusalem, God's precious city. 773 sort of gives you this summary statement. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. It gives you this picture of the people of God who had been foreigners, the people of God who had returned, the people of God who had been troubled, the people of God who had suffered. They now are settled because of the goodness of God. Under the leadership of Nehemiah and others. In other words, chapter 7 is that God has a people. He's redeemed those people. He's gathered those people. You're going to see the word people show up. When we get to chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, people is going to show up 13 times. All people will show or occur nine times. This is about a people. And we'll see in chapter it's about a people who are Bible people or word people. They've now experienced God's goodness in rebuilding their walls. Took them 52 days. It's going to take a lifetime to rebuild God's people. They have a secured city. It's an organized city. It's a defended city now. It's a governed city now. And they're cleaning up their act. I heard the message from last week, I believe, or whichever one pastor sent me. I said, yes, he's addressed the social ills. Oh, they have now the best city. But guess what? Chapter 8 tells us that the best cities are biblical cities or filled with biblical citizens. (laughs) That the best cities are not just sanitized, but they're also catechized. (laughs) That cities, yeah, cities may be a nice place to live in, but they have to be a place where you can learn in. The ideal world still needs the inspired word. Oh, chapter 7 says that God's got a host of people that cover all the bases. Put them together, and what do you find? A people that will say, now, show me the word. Chapter 8, if you will. Chapter 8, God's people are word people. What we're going to see now in this chapter, which focuses on the joy of God's word, is that God's people who are word people are dedicated to understanding the word, That God's people rejoice or find their joy in the word. And that God's people obey his word. That's where we're going. That's where we're going in chapter 8. First of all, God's people are dedicated to understanding God's word. Verses 1 to 8. 
Six times in this chapter, you're going to hear understanding. The word understanding will come up. This is not just about you have the word, you like the word, you read the word. This is about you understand the word. To benefit from the Bible, you can't just rub it like a genie. To be, to, you can't just download it into your system. You can't just stream it into your heart. You must wrestle with the word, read the word, meditate on it. Psalm 1 says it like this, chew on it like cows do grass. Cud, chew on it, swallow it, bring it back up. Chew on it, swallow it, bring it back up. And they do that until it's a part of their system. On your law, I meditate day and night, the psalmist says. You have to understand the word. I don't know about you, but I didn't like Christianity, but I didn't realize it's because I didn't understand Christianity. I thought it was just the externals, but it wasn't until God gave me sight to see and he opened up my mind to appreciate the scriptures beyond its cute stories. Luke 24 says the resurrected Christ rallied his disciples up and it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. These guys knew the scriptures. You know the average Jew knew the scriptures. In fact, when Andrew came and told the Apostle Peter, we found the Messiah, he knew because he had been looking at the scriptures. But Luke 24 says that God opened up their minds to understand the scriptures. You have to understand the scriptures. Understanding requires you to be dedicated to the scriptures. So look at one and two. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the law, excuse me, that the Lord had commanded. First of all, all the people, there we go again, 50,000, they all get together, the Bible says, as one man. This is the tendency of believers who are really mature in Christ. You don't just want to do personal devos. You want to get with people in community and unity and dedicate yourselves to the scriptures collectively. The Bible says that when the Spirit of God came, it formed people who had the Spirit and they says they devoted themselves, Acts 2, remember this, 42. They devoted themselves collectively to the apostles' teaching. They gathered as one man, all because they believe in corporate coming together around the scriptures. I was doing a study on unsocial media. We call it social media, but social media, they say, is making us unsociable. They say, you remember a time when you went and you sat in front of the TV as a family because that was a time to socialize around your favorite shows? They said, ever since they allowed you to stream them on your own and on your private phone and tablet, everyone goes to their corner of the room, gets their own uh, TV show, and enjoys it alone on social media. They said, you know, you remember when you put on a record player and the music filled the house? What's that? <laughs> now, we just put our buds in. They're cordless. And everyone says, what are you listening to? I'm, whatever I'm doing, I'm doing it without you. You're not necessary. We're becoming more unsocial and we take that into our faith. I got my Bible, it's on my Bible app, and me and Jesus, long as I got Jesus, I don't need nobody else. I've been lied on, cheated, talked about. There is something wrong with bedside Baptists if you can get out the bed. The Bible says that believers get out. It says that they 
all gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And what did they ask for? Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law. You see their dedication. Why would anyone want the book of the law? Because it's their want and it's their way. It's their want. The Bible says that regenerated people want the word like babies want milk. If you've had babies, and I'm sure you, there's many in here who do. There's a reason why our infants love our wives more than us. They have something we don't. What they want. He says that's what they do. But it's also the way. It's the, it's the Christian way. It's the way of the people of God. They called up the guy who specialized in word. They said, give us Ezra the scribe. The one who Ezra 7 says, he studied the scriptures. He's diligent in the scriptures. He knows the scriptures and he proclaims the scriptures. Give us that guy. Acts chapter 6, the apostles said, oh, there's a problem in the church? Okay, it seems like it's something somebody else who's filled with the Spirit of God can do. Choose people who can do what can be done. We cannot stop doing what we must do. They said, give us the guy who not only knows the word, but that's what he senses he's supposed to do, Ezra. This is what we call a Bible revival when the regular people want the word and not just the pastor making you say, here, I got a great band coming. Here's a nice flyer. Tell your friends to come. It says that they asked for the word because they were dedicated to the word. They were dedicated to the word. Not just the, the, the fancy high points. It says the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, five books. How many people say, man, I can't wait to get in Leviticus. <laughs> I'm telling you, I was up in, I was up in numbers today. <sighs> numbers was killing it today. <laughs> Most of us jump from story to story. In fact, topical preaching is often because people want to skip over the boring part and get to the parts they like. And yet expository preaching which says, let's just take you from verse to verse to verse. And when we get to a verse we would rather not read or rather not understand, we don't have that prerogative because it's the next verse and it's all God's word. They said, give us the word. Give us the law of Moses. All five books. Ezra brought out the law. And it says here, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. In other words, if you could understand, you were there. And if you were there, you began to understand. If you could understand, you were there. And if you were there, you began to understand. I don't know what your policy is, but it is just true in our society that we exempt very brilliant children from sitting under the word. It's not because they can't understand. It's not because they can't sit still. Last night I was with my brother. We had his toddler. She was all over the place. Then we put Moana right in front of her. And all that over-the-placeness came to a halt. She was glued. She was fixed. 
We've seen teenagers who are glued and who are fixed. We've seen teenagers who are glued and who are fixed. Who are glued, who are fixed. But we still exempt them from big boy and big girl Christianity, the Word. Give them their own version of the Word, lesser version of the Word. He says, all the people, both men and women, all who could understand, they were gathered. You see the people's dedication to the Word. You see their attentiveness to the Word. And so look what it says. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. The book of the law. You know, young people always seem to want to be in grown folks' business when it's just regular stuff. You know, you're talking with your friend and your kids are just sitting there like, yeah, because I was telling her. Like, hold on, what are you doing here? This combo is not for you. But then when we have grown up and mature spiritual conversation, all of a sudden my friend's calling me. This is just the idea of a person who's been revived by the word and has a desire for the word, doesn't mind sitting around the word. They were attentive. The word really means eager to learn. Eager to learn. They were eager. They had pen and pad out. My daughter, one of them, every day she says, hey dad, can you record 7th heaven for me? I don't have to, she'll remind me every day. Dad, it's 3 (laughs) o'clock. She's eager to watch some seventh heaven. At least it has the word heaven in the title. <laughs> but they're attentive. But guess how long that how long they are together. It says from early morning until midday they were in the word. Five or six hours in the heat in the Middle East. My pastor back home, he said, This is not a TED talk. <laughs> this is a Ez talk. <laughs> Ezra is talking. You've heard the saying, sermonettes breed Christianettes. Small Bible or small teaching leads to small Christians. They're attentive. We said that Luke 24, God opened up the disciples to understand the scriptures. Acts 16 says that God opened up Lydia's heart to pay attention to the preaching of the word. We need both today, do we not? We need God to give us a heart to want the word. We need God to give us a heart to pay attention when we're around it. This is revival. Wanting the word. Wanting the word. Because God's people are dedicated to understanding this word. This happens in community. Corporate. So we see a bunch of things that the community of faith did. Watch this, verse 4, 4 to 8. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood a whole bunch of people whose names I would struggle with right now. So I'm going to go to 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. Watch these bullet points. First of all, the community builds a pulpit platform for the word so what this shows you is that they were to understand the word they had a sense of expectancy you don't build something expecting something that you don't expect if i go to your home and i see you building a crib and i say what are you doing that for and you'll look at me like i'm crazy because we're expecting a baby why else would i be putting a crib together 
Why were they creating a pulpit? It was because they expected something that from which the word would come forth. You see the community's expectancy. You see communities of teachers. It says that they had a whole bunch of people. And they all helped with the conveying of the word of God. Five, you see a community of submitted hearers. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. He was above them. And it says, as he opened the book, all the people stood. And the picture is, stood to receive the word that was being deposited in them. This is a picture of a people who submit to the authority. You see them expectancy, but you also see them submitted to its authority. It's elevated. It's over them. It's coming down and they are recognizing that the word of God stands over them. They don't stand in judgment on the word of God. You've heard of the enlightenment. The enlightenment is that movement where reason switch places with revelation. Revelation is what God tells us, so revelation comes down to us and we receive it. Reason is when we use our minds while we look up and say, that makes sense. So reason is what we come up with, revelation is what God brings down to us. To be submitted to the word is to let God do the speaking, not for you to question, oh, what kind of God would do that? They were submitted. The pulpit is elevated. The reformers are credited with breaking the cycle in their day by taking a pulpit that had been off to the side and bringing it back into the center so that everyone in the church would have a visual representation of the place that the word of God deserves among the people of God. Front and center where everyone can see it. And so, I myself have lately been saying, we need to do like, you've heard reclaiming my time. Have you ever heard me claiming my time? We need to reclaim the line, the Bible says. Used to be a time when people started their opinions off with, because the Bible says. Preachers would preach. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Kind of like Mr. Billy Graham, the late great Billy Graham. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that there's no name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. But the man Christ Jesus. There's only one meter. The Bible says. It was always the Bible says. Now we just talk. Because the authority is ambiguous. These people stood under the word which was elevated over them because they wanted to hear from God and not just impressive men. You see, a community starts to worship because the community is under the word. Six, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The true definition of worship in the Bible is prostration. It is bowing. That's what it means. The word worship means to bow. Some people say after praise and worship music, after this last praise and worship song, after worship, we will then have the word. But what this really teaches is that first you have the word. And the word instructs you in how to worship. 
The word reveals the God we worship. This is not worshiping the preacher. This is not worshiping the Bible. This is worshiping the God that the preacher conveys about through the word. Uh, and the word is the one that reveals the God that we bow to. We bow to. Lord, forgive our posture. We have not bowed. We have a million Bibles, but we don't often bow to the God that the Bible reveals to us. If you're not a Christian in here, perhaps you read the Bible because you know it's good literature, because it is. Perhaps you read the Bible because you like what some things you can get out of it. But these people were under the word six hours, and by the time God had revealed himself to them through his word, they found themselves on their faces. The story is told that Spurgeon was with another preacher. The other preacher was so good that they said, that's a great preacher. But after Spurgeon, they said, that preacher knows a great God. Which one would you rather? People be impressed with me and you? The kind of Bible we have? What's that, a calfskin? Wow. That's one of those expensive kind. I can tell it's got a rope you tie around it. It's got a flap. Somebody else is like, that's a big Bible. What you got? Oh, it's got pictures. Oh, it's got maps. Oh, it's got, oh, that's the African Bible. Yeah, the one that shows you all the black people that's in it. (laughs) Praise God for our Bibles. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship the God that the Bible reveals. What did they do? What would make you fall before God and see Him clearly enough to worship Him? It's what we call expositional preaching or Bible or expository preaching. Exposing what's there rather than imposing on what's there. Look what it says, 7. In Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, I figured I'd try these. Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Messiah, Kalata, Azariah, Jezebel, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. With the people remained, excuse me, while the people remained in their places. Now here's what they did. This is this is a picture of what their time in the Word looked like. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. They gave the sense. So that the people understood the reading. Bible exposition. They read the Bible. They explained the Bible. So that the people could understand the Bible. (laughs) I said today, I said, we like God's wording, not God's word. He just says it better than us. Especially if you use King James. (laughs) Thou shalt not. Just sounds a little more, you know, hardcore than don't do it. It's more, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Just sounds more poetic. We like the way God says it, but we don't want to do what it says often. They said, no, we want to give you what it says. We want to tell you what it means so that you at least say, I understand it. Russ Moore came to our seminary one time, if you're familiar with Russ Moore, uh, head of the ERLC, and he said, uh, he said, hey, I know a guy who, he was able to articulate what he was rejecting. 
He says, no, because you won't believe that the only way to heaven is Jesus. And he just went through all the things that Christians believe. And Moore said, I felt better that he knew what we believed and then rejected it. Than if he rejected something we don't even teach. We want God's word. J.I. Packer says something about expository preaching in this moment. He says, the preacher should become the mouthpiece of his text, opening it up and explaining and applying it as the word of God to his hearers, speaking in order that the text may be heard and making each point from his text in such a manner that the hearers may indeed discern the very voice of God. In the book, The Glory of God in Preaching, John Piper urges the students of preaching. He says, quote the text, quote the text, read the text, read the text, show them where you got it from. He says, you're submitting to the word when you don't always just paraphrase. Show them that you got what you're saying from the text itself. They read the Bible. They explained the Bible. The people said... Now I understand the Bible. This is a picture of their dedication to understand God's word. But then they also rejoice in God's word. I won't spend as much time on these latter points. God's people rejoice in God's word. Look at 8, 9 to 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The Bible would do that to you, because the Bible is a mirror, and they felt and sensed conviction because they heard in the Bible bad news, which God always wants you to hear in order to give you a backdrop to appreciate his good news. Some people cherry pick the good news because they don't like the bad news. But important in the word is the bad news so we will become appreciative of God's good news. They sense the bad news. It says that they wept. They mourned. The Bible says blessed are those who mourn. Why would you mourn? Because you sense your unworthiness. You sense your sinfulness. You sense that you've fallen short of God's glory. And the Bible is the mirror that shows you His glory. Then you look and say, I look nothing like him and you mourn but once you receive that bad news the Bible reminds you quickly of his good news and so they rejoiced and received the good news 10 says then he said to him go your way eat the fat drink the sweet wine send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength Oh, how many people love that verse? The Bible says weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And so he looks and he says, he says, don't mourn. This is not a day for that. It said that this is the first day of the seventh month. It was the Feast of Trumpets. The Trumpets was a festive time to announce that right around the corner is the 
uh, the day of atonement. The day of atonement was the day when the high priest would take everyone's sins, go into the holy of holies, and make sacrifice or atonement for the sins of the nation, and come out and tell you, he did it again, y'all. He did it again. We're forgiven. We're forgiven. The great God who says we are sinners has been also the God who says, but the sinner doesn't have to die because there's been a sacrifice. This sacrifice then allows the one who's judged to be the one who says you're pardoned. Instead of the penalty of our sins, we get a pardon from sin. He says, rejoice, rejoice that repentance has led God to bring forgiveness. Rejoice, God's people rejoice because this is what they find in the word. We find in the word that in Genesis chapter 3, there's a fall that plunged us all into a terrible predicament. But we also read in 3.15 that God's going to send someone who will crush the head of the serpent. And he will bruise his heel, cross, but he will crush his head, hell, in Hades, in the lake of fire. It's the good news that we find in the gospel. The reason why the Bible gives us the Old Testament is to show us whether you're talking about David, whether you're talking about Solomon, whether you're talking about Moses, whether you're talking about Daniel, whether you're talking about Joseph. It doesn't matter who you're impressed with in the Old Testament. They all had flaws. Whether you're talking about John the Baptist in the New Testament, they all have to say... This is the one. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when you see that, it's like your soul bursts from mourning into joy. We rejoice in the Word. Jesus Christ is called the Word, the living Word. Oh. Okay, I'm going to preach. I'm almost finished, though. God's people rejoice because the Word reveals that God's anger has been satisfied by the death of Jesus Christ. And the resurrection proved that God has accepted His death on behalf of sinners. Please don't go to God with your own sins, trying to make an arrangement with Him. If you're a non-Christian, let us tell you that the Bible says that when we go to God, we don't go to God saying we're not that bad. That He should forgive us because after all, we're better than someone else. Because after all, God, I try my best. We don't go to God saying I go to church. We don't go to God saying I was baptized as a kid. We don't go to God saying, will you see what I did? We go to God saying I have nothing to bring other than the sin for which I need your salvation. But I heard that you're a good God who lets us know that that the bad news is that I'm a sinner and all who sin. The wages of sin is death. But you're a good God who, while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Rejoice today, saints. Rejoice. Lastly, lastly, God's people are not only dedicated to understanding the word, God's people don't only rejoice in the word, they obey the word. They obey the word. Look, it says on the second day, the heads of the fathers, I'm in 13, the heads of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months. So there was a feast that God had established 
where they were supposed to, for seven days, they would be intense to sort of relive the Exodus experience where God had delivered them, but led them out of deliverance through the wilderness where they were tent dwellers. So this was the reminder that God had delivered them from just being nomads drifting in the wilderness and bringing them to the sweet promised land, even the one that they are in right now. So it was a permanent feast. They hadn't been keeping it, so they were sad about it. They were like, oh no, we were supposed to do that. And so, he says to them, Go proclaim it and publish it in all the towns, I'm in 15, and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths. Do it. Obey. You know what you haven't been doing, but don't cry about it. Just obey. Start doing it. 16. So the people went out and what did they do? Obey. They brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, and in the square of the gate of Ephraim. So all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, Joshua, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. See, they had been living, neglecting this. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Here's the deal, saints. They obeyed the word of God. They obeyed the word of God. God told them, remember where I brought you from. Is there anybody here that knows that God brought them out of the desert? Is there anybody here that remembers where he got you from? What club did he pick you from? What bar did he pick you from? What side street did he pick you from? What hotel motel or holiday inn did he pick you from oh whose house did he pick you from what job did he pick you from he says just remember I got you you were in the wilderness and I'm the one who brought you to Jerusalem a land flowing with milk and honey into the promised land did Jesus bring anybody out today has he brought you into a sweet place today has he placed your feet on solid ground today has he clothed you in your right mind today he says go remember this And then rejoice, rejoice. Well, this obedience would be short-lived. And as I close, chapter 13 is coming. And when you get there, you see this revival dwindles. One preacher said, we're leaky. This revival is going to dwindle, just like you and I. In January, how many people were reading their Bibles faithfully? And now here we are. And the Bible is side. Thank you. Uh, anyone who's pre- those uh, handkerchiefs the preachers have? <laughs> Ain't he all right? <laughs> Ain't he all right? And, and, and the Bible makes clear that, that this revival is going to dwindle. The joy they felt is going to go to the side. The obedience they display is going to fade. That's why we look to the Lord Jesus The only one who perfectly stays faithful to the word. He is the word. Think about him as we end. Think about him at 12. 
12 years old before he was responsible for the covenant. We said kids, anyone who can understand can be around the word. The Bible says before he was grown up, Bar Mitzvah in 13, he was in the temple. It says he didn't stay at the temple, he stayed after the feast. The feast had been seven days and then an eighth. It says not Jesus got left like home alone. Uh, it says that Jesus remained back. He wasn't remaining back because he had some friends. He wasn't remaining back because he liked some girl. It says when they found him, he was sitting around the teachers discussing the law. Because Jesus had an appetite for the word. It says that when his parents came, he said, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house where it's all about the word. And then the Bible says that they said, let's go, son. And then it says he obeyed because Jesus was committed to obeying the word. All I'm saying to you is that Jesus Christ is the perfect model of what it means to want the word, to understand the word, to rejoice in the word and obey the word. I don't know about you right now. I'm looking for somebody that has better credit than me. And if you're willing to be my co-signer, I need some things. See me at the church. But right now we need somebody who's got the kind of credit to give us the kind of righteousness we need. Jesus Christ is that one today. Is there anyone who wants him today? Trust in him today. Trust in him today. Seven and eight, God has a people, chapter seven. Those people are people of the word, chapter eight. They understand it and commit themselves to understanding it. They rejoice in it because there's bad news, but there's far more good news. And they obey it because you can't be a hearer only, but you must be a doer. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, how good and pleasant it is for us to rally around the word of God in unity. Thank you for downtown church, the pastors that allowed me to stand in the pulpit, the saints that listened. If there's anyone in here, Lord God, who was not a believer, would you draw them, certainly not on the strength of who I am, certainly not on the strength of the job I did, but because you have ordained salvation for some. And you decide when the word of God will awaken them by the spirit of God. And reveal their need for Christ. And then you will put Christ who hung on a cross, died and rose on display. Father, thank you for being the word, sending the word we should say. And thank you for this church. Bless their efforts to remain faithful to it. In Jesus' name, amen.